All right, guys, we are going to get into the Word today. I'm excited for this new series uh, that we're beginning today. It's called Desperate Prayers, and um, today we're going to look at, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to the little book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, it's a minor prophet, and we're going to dig in. So we're going to be looking at a different desperate prayer in Scripture. Um, Every single week, there's really hundreds of them, but we're just going to pick uh, five or six or seven and do this series for a little while, um, at least kind of through Easter. And the aim of this series, just to give a little foundation here, the aim of this series is to help you see what God does and what God says in response to your desperate prayers. I think we've all probably, uh, at least one time or other, even before I was a Christian, I offered up desperate prayers at times. Um, But I want you to understand that your desperate prayers are heard by God. Prayers make a difference. It says in James chapter 5, right? The effectual fervent prayers of the righteous avail much, make a difference. Your prayers don't fall to the ground. But it's important to understand that God sometimes answers our desperate prayers in unexpected ways. And also our prayers are answered in God's perfect timing. Part of why we're doing this series is because God has been stirring things around the country and some have read about the Asbury... um, university revival, and that's kind of stirred some interest in moves of God and revivals. And we had a great gathering here on Thursday where God really refreshed us and poured his spirit out. And people were praying and seeking here till like 10 at night. It was awesome. We're looking forward to next uh, Wednesday, kind of a multi-church gathering in the city with uh, John Tyson, who's a pastor from New York City. And there's just been a lot of intensity lately a lot of excitement, and I would say some desperation for God. There's been a lot of crying out for God to move, especially on this young generation. So this is part of why um, I'm feeling this particular series. But desperate praying is not something we do continually. It's, it's more of a moment in time. It's more of a, a season of agonizing Prayer. Desperate prayers are often pivotal moments in our lives when we either give up the fight or we enter into a firm and settled conviction to persevere. I say this because I don't want you to think that, you know, God wants you to like pray desperate prayers like every single day of your life. That would be incredibly exhausting, I think, if you've really had those times of praying desperately. It depletes you emotionally, right? It, it, it just drains everything out of you. Those prayers come from a deep place. But the deeper thing that God is concerned with is that we receive what he is saying and doing in these kind of turning points of our lives. Luke 18, uh, I'm not going to get into this whole parable, but Jesus is about to give a parable, and it says, Luke 18, 1 says, 
and he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that's really what this series is about. Lots of people pray desperate prayers at times in their life, but what we want is to come out on the other side of desperate praying, still praying, still believing, and not uh, losing heart. Does that make sense? Hopefully it'll make more sense as we get into this series. So like I said, we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. Um, and the book of Habakkuk is just, it's just three chapters. The first uh, couple chapters, it's a unique book. It's just basically a conversation, a dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and God. And then the last chapter is essentially a song, a psalm, if you will. The book of Habakkuk was written at a time of great spiritual decline for God's people. Um, if, you read, if you read the book of Jeremiah, it goes into great detail. But it was just before the Babylonian invasion and the fall of Jerusalem. And again, you can read about that in Jeremiah 39. It talks about the fall of Jerusalem. The oppression from the Chaldeans or the Babylonians was being felt keenly by God's people. The prophet describes this uh, in vivid detail, even in the book of Habakkuk, how like wicked and evil and how oppressive these Babylonians were. And this was about 600 BC. Things were bad, but they were about to get much worse. In the years to follow, the wall in Jerusalem would be broken down, the city would be burned with fire, many of God's people would die and they would be taken into exile. The book of Lamentations, tough book to read, written by Jeremiah, is really uh, just, uh, well, it is, it's a lament. Um, it gives you a, a sense of just how heavy and how dreadful the, the judgment of God was upon the nation. And again, Habakkuk was writing this just before this destruction happened. So the first complaint of Habakkuk is this. It's kind of a prayer. It's more of a, just a, a venting, a complaint before God. But he's really upset at God because God seems to be letting this evil nation, Babylon, browbeat his chosen people. And he feels like God isn't being just. And he complains vocally to the Lord about it. He cries out in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity or sin? And why do you, look, why do you idly look at wrong? He's kind of accusing God there. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. He's being a little dramatic there. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. Now this might come across as uh, maybe disrespectful. Depends on what kind of tradition you 
come from and how we're taught to pray and how we're taught to relate to God. But I think it's actually uh, maybe an insight into maybe how comfortable or how close God was to Habakkuk and that Habakkuk could feel comfortable uh, opening up some of these doubts and struggles uh, to the Lord. And I'm not sure if he's so much accusing God as much as he's kind of expressing the deep confusion that he feels. What he sees happening in the world does not seem congruent with the character of the Lord. And so he's seeking here. He's processing things. He's trying to understand uh, why God is doing what God is doing. And I think, uh, I think we've all been there at times, right? I mean, we're finite creatures. We're limited in our understanding. Even if we've been studying the Bible and theology for a long time, there, there's just still, it's a lot, right, to process things. Uh, we don't always understand the ways of God, the, the mysteries of God. And we don't know why there's so much suffering in the world or why God just doesn't intervene at times. And it, it just, it, it can be confusing. But I think Habakkuk uh, gives us a good example here of just, you know, let's bring these things to the Lord. Uh, God will hear and God will respond. And God does respond. Now, God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint was not at all what Habakkuk was like imagining, right? He tells the prophet that he is going to actually use the Babylonians, these evil people, to discipline his own people. Habakkuk 1 Verses five to six say, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. This is God speaking. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Sometimes we got to use that scripture out of context and about, I'm going to do exciting things. Well, this is not exciting. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. And I usually don't preach from the message version, but I'm going uh, to add a few, um, just read some of the, the message version paraphrase just to kind of give some more sense because they're just so well written. This is the message version, same verses. It says, look around at the godless nations, look long and hard, brace yourself, Habakkuk, for a shock. Something's about to take place and you're going to find it hard to believe. I am about to raise up Babylonians to punish you. Whoa. Which leads to Habakkuk's second complaint. He does not like this plan of God to use Babylon, a much more wicked nation, to punish the people of God. And the prophet tries to, it's actually kind of funny, reason with God. And he tries to convince God that, you know, maybe perhaps God isn't thinking clearly on this matter. <laughs> and it's, it is, it's kind of funny, to, but, you know, this is what he's doing in this. And before we get too critical, by the way, of Habakkuk, I think we've, I know I've done that. Have you found yourself doing, would you just kind of pause for a second and you think about, what have I just been praying about for the last 10 minutes? Oh yeah, I'm trying to persuade God to act a certain way. Um, I'm going to counsel God. You know, that's just, God must, he's got to have a sense of humor, right? <laughs> Job tried that. 
so yeah, the prophet tries to reason with God, convince God. Um, <laughs> so Habakkuk's argument is that, well, come on, Babylon is wicked and terrible. Uh, so how could he possibly use them to judge his chosen people? In plain language, Habakkuk is saying, seriously, God? Really? Here's how the Message Bible puts it. God, you're from eternity, aren't you? Holy God, we aren't going to die, are we? God, you chose Babylonians for your judgment work? Rock solid, God, you gave them the job of discipline? You can't be serious. You can't condone evil. Why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent now? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you stand around and watch. He's pretty bold here. But after Habakkuk states his complaint before the Lord, he then, I love this, postures himself to listen. Notice the first verse of chapter two. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And I think this one verse is important to notice because it shows Habakkuk doesn't just arrogantly disagree with God. Well, I don't like your plan. I think your plan is dumb. No, he, he's trying to, he's confused. He's genuinely confused about how God is working here. But he expresses that and he's wanting to understand. He's, he's listening to God. He positions himself to listen to the response of God and in hopes that God will reveal um, why he's doing what he's doing. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Now, the Lord does respond. <laughs> we don't know how long. You know, it's funny. We kind of, when you read the three chapters in the back, you think like, you know, he says this, um, complaint, and then three seconds later, God responds. But in real life, I'm not sure that it was like that. It could have been hours. It could have been days. It could have been actually months that he had to wait for the answer. We're not really sure. But we do know that God does respond. And he says this, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, write the vision Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Again, I'm going to read the message version because it gives a little sense to it. It goes like this. And then God answered, write this. Write what you see. Like God is basically saying, I'm, I'm about to give you something. I'm going to give you a word right now. And I want you to write it out in big block letters so that it can be read on the run. This vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wait. It doesn't lie. If it seems slow in coming, wait. It's on its way. It will come right on time. So God is preparing the prophet for what he's about to say. In so many words, God is saying, you know, get a tablet of stone and chisel these words into it. Make the words large for everybody to read. What I'm about to say is a certain thing, Habakkuk, and I don't want you to forget it. 
And then for almost 20 verses, or 17 verses or something, the Lord communicates with clarity and force that he will, in fact, judge the people for their sin. He gives specific woes, five different woes that seem to be for the Babylonians, but really could also apply to his own people. God answers Habakkuk's complaint about using Babylon to punish his people by telling the prophet in so many words, don't worry, Babylon will not get away with anything. They will be judged at my appointed time. Their day of reckoning will come. Now think of how shocking this answer must have been to the prophet. He was agonizing at the beginning of this book, right? He's agonizing over how long it's taking God to like show up and deal with the, un, the, the, the injustice that's happening all around to his own people. God responds by essentially saying that he will continue to delay things and that in fact, things will get much worse. But strangely, at this point, Habakkuk seems to shift from frustration to faith. His desperate prayers turn to quiet trust. He says in chapter 3, verse 16, I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He takes heart that God is very aware of the injustices happening to his people. And he accepts the fact that God's people must be disciplined. He accepts the plan despite the fact that deliverance seems like a slow train coming. Now, what does all this have to do with us? Right? I think this is like thousands of years ago. Babylonians, you know, God's judgment using Babylon. What is all this about? Is this situation relevant to us at all? The context in Habakkuk's day was that God was disciplining his people. He was allowing ungodly people to oppress God's people because God's people had forgotten to be godly, right? But can we just pause and have a moment here, like a real moment, and just say, isn't this very much what's happening in America? We are a nation that's pushed away God, the God of the Bible, at least. We've you know, erected in his place our own versions of God, another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. And even though we have more churches and more Bible schools and more Christian radio and TV programs and Bibles than any other nation on the planet, we are simultaneously one of the most corrupt nations on the planet. We've made a mockery of, of God, God's holy things. And we, we no longer, you know, regard his commands as a, as a nation. The land is full of idolatry. It's a fountain of sexual filth. 
and we won't get too deep into that, but it's, I mean, we pretty much fuel the porn industry. We, we, we make sure, as a nation, we make sure that the sex trafficking industry can continue on alive and well. That's America. Even though we've had some of the greatest Christian revivals in the history of the church, America has really in large part forsaken the God who brought so much blessing to America. I'm not saying America was a Christian nation. I'm not getting, you know, getting into that because it never was. But there were times where God was really moving in this nation. First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening. There were times that a lot of, there was a momentum in this country of people seeking the Lord and fearing the Lord. So I do believe America is under the judgment of a holy God. And by the way, that judgment always begins with his own people, doesn't it? Judgment begins in the house of God, it says in 1 Peter 5. So this statement might shock us, and I don't say it lightly, because, you know, we're taught, and I know not everybody in this space here is, you know, a citizen of America or, you know, grew up here or whatnot, but probably most of us have grown up in this country and we're just taught, you know, from childhood that America is special. You know, America is like God's country. It's blessed. America is blessed. God bless America. You know, all the politicians end their speeches with God bless America. But America is a, a country that has really provoked God a lot. Like God is really patient. Thank God for his patience and his long suffering. But we are a nation that has pushed God. And there is this idea in Scripture, not just in the book of Habakkuk, but all through Scripture, of uh, sort of a cup of sin, right? You've heard of that uh, metaphor in Scripture, this sort of cup of iniquity or cup of sin, and when it overflows, it overflows to divine judgment. When the sins of a nation reach a tipping point, God moves in judgment upon that nation. And I believe we are dangerously close to that tipping point. In fact, we may even be beyond that tipping point. And, and God's judgment may be already on this nation, kind of coming to us maybe in slow fashion, layer upon layer. Again, those are just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. You know, I'm just, I'm just kind of going, I'm, I'm just a student of scripture and just kind of seeing the way God works through history. But, and just kind of looking, you know, student also of our country and of the state of things in our country. And I see some parallels. Now let's swing back to just kind of take that. I don't want to get too, because it's heavy, right, to think about. But I also want to be real because, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of talk of revival, right? You know, but I also want to like, I want to make sure we, we're thinking clearly about all of this. So let's come back to Habakkuk. He appeals to God's mercy and begs God to revive his mighty works. It's kind of a famous 
prayer, right? Habakkuk 3, 2. I'll read it in a minute. But what the prophet has in mind are the works of God that, that sort of crush the enemies and bring prosperity to the nation, right? Habakkuk wants to get the Chaldeans off their back and demonstrate his might, you know, the way he did in, in overthrowing the Egyptians, you know, when the the Israelites, you know, came through the Red Sea and that exciting thing, or when David slew Goliath and Israel defeated the Philistines. He tells God that he has heard of his fame. I've heard of the great things that you've done in the past, God, these stories that are passed down from generation to generation of how God defended his people in the past. And, and the prophet is here, he's asking for God to revive his works and to revive his works now. <laughs> Have you ever prayed like that? That's why we love uh, Habakkuk 3.2. It's like a famous revival verse because, you know, the phrase there is, in our time, in our generation, move. And it's a desperate cry. He's praying desperately here for God to overthrow his enemies and establish his people as a blessed people. Let's read Habakkuk 3.2. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, or some of your Bible versions might say, in our time, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And my question here is, does this sound familiar? Is it not the frequent prayer of many of us? Send revival, Lord. Change everything. Let the glory of God come down and make our society Christian. Let the glory of God and the knowledge of God cover Rhode Island, cover New England, come like a mighty flood. How many have prayed some, I mean, these are my phrases and vocabulary or whatever, but we've kind of wanted this, right? Isn't it hard to be such a, extreme minority, right? Especially if you're a young person in this place, like teenager or young adult. It's like there's less and less people who are, seem to be following Jesus and you're just this fish swimming, you know, upstream. Amen. And we just want to see just this move of God that captivates all of society. Yeah. Atheists come crumbling down, you know, and just people like just acknowledging that there is a God you know, we love stories like Elijah and the, and the prophets of Baal, right? Just the challenge, and he calls down fire from heaven, and the, the prophets, you know, the prophets are just, oh, he is God. And the people realize, because of this demonstration of the Spirit's power, that there is a living God. We love those stories. I mean, I've prayed those stories over and over. I've been praying these things for 34 years. And God has honestly not granted my request. So what is going on? How do you process that? How, how does somebody continue to pray for 34 years and not get discouraged? Some people pray for revival for like three weeks. And they're just like, all right, well, I guess it's not gonna happen. We're not gonna, I'm done. I'm finished. How long does it take for God to answer? And, you know, I think if we're honest, we can even say, is God even listening? 
to these cries? Why doesn't he answer these desperate cries that were given to him to turn America back to God? And listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray these lofty prayers. God loves our big prayers. And he kind of invites us to pray big, you know, exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or imagine. God loves big prayers. But if we pray big prayers and don't see big answers or even see little answers, what are we to think? It's very easy to get disappointed and disillusioned and discouraged. It's easy to lose faith. And that's what we're talking about here. Here's the thing. If God is judging America, our prayers that God will bless America will not halt God's judgment. Can we just say amen to that? That's why God at times told even the prophets, the praying prophets, not even to pray for his people because he would not bless them. I'll give it to you. God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, 16, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk, by the way. But God will do. He will cause our faith to flourish amidst national spiritual decline. Just let that sink in for a minute. What God will do is cause our faith to flourish everything is falling apart around us. And this is where Habakkuk lands at the end of the book. He starts in a place of fear and frustration, but ends in a place of faith because the just shall live by faith. And he says this at the end of the book, though the fig tree shall not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me tread on my high places. The message version, I think, is it just, you know, kind of brings it more into our world. Though the cherry trees don't blossom, though the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are (laughs) worm-eaten, And the wheat fields stunted. The sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns empty. I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Savior God, counting on God's rule to prevail. And I take heart, I gain strength, I run like a deer, and I feel like I'm king of the mountain. Think about that. He's saying that amidst utter They are on the brink of utter collapse and destruction. He knows that it's coming. And yet he has found faith and joy in his God. God will reward those who diligently seek him. 
He will give hope and joy to his chosen people who trust him, and he will make our feet like the feet of a deer. Why a deer? You know, even on a slippery, rocky slope, the deer's feet, don't, you don't really see a deer like kind of trip, you know, and just like they're walking along, they just slip, right? You know, they're, they're just very agile creatures. God will make us agile. He will make us firm-footed, even if the spiritual condition becomes worse in America, he will guard us and he will preserve his people and he will reward diligently with joy and strength his chosen people. Will things get worse in America? Listen, I don't know. Again, I'm not a prophet, but I am a student of the Bible and I am a student of the New Testament. And I know in the New Testament it says, evil men will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And in the, in the end days that, you know, there will be uh, seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And there will be this darkness. Many false prophets will appear and false teachers to deceive many. And the love of most will grow cold, Jesus said. You say, well, that's not very exciting. I want to hear about like a, a coming exciting revival. I want to hear about like a coming great mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. Listen, I'm saying God is always ready to pour out his spirit upon the hungry. But what I'm saying is the hungry, I don't know what percentage of the population that will be. And I, my gut feeling is that it's going to, it's going to continue to be small. It may get smaller. Therefore, let your desperate prayers for revival in the land not lead to despair and disappointment if you don't see the big results you desire to see. Let your desperate prayers lead you to find a faith that flourishes even amidst a season of spiritual decay. The truth is that we may never see a national revival we may never see a big outpouring of the Spirit that transforms all of America or turns providence upside down. I mean, I'm going to keep praying for that, just like the prophet kept on praying for that. Like, in our day, do it, God. In our time, just pour it out. Sure, rend the heavens and come down. We're going to keep praying that. But we may never see it. Even in the first century, when Christianity was so red hot, it was not a national revival. The Christians were a persecuted minority. Things may get worse. More and more churches may fall apart. Young adults may continue to fall away from the faith. Christians may even get to a place where they are so persecuted they cannot prosper financially. They may struggle to keep their cupboards full. But despite not seeing the outward material blessings upon the church and upon the nation that we long for, listen, we can rest our faith on God giving us strength and joy. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Doesn't that imply that it's not tomorrow? Maybe it's tomorrow, and it hasn't happened already. 
we're talking about a future thing. So in the in the present moment, in we're in a season of suffering. We're in a season of being strangers and pilgrims, right? We're in a season where uh, you know we're just this persecuted minority fearing God and God is refreshing us in that, but we are swimming upstream. There are godly people in the Bible that you can read about like Josiah. Don't you want to be Josiah? Like he led this national revival. But then there are other godly people in the Bible like Jeremiah who had a ministry of what? Tears and rejection and grief. Listen, we can't, I don't know, uh, we, can, we can whine to God and say, boy, I really wish I, really wish I lived in the, the time of the first great awakening or some other powerful revival that happened, the Welsh revival or something like that. Like, I, yeah, like me too, I feel that. But we can't control those things, right? God decides, Acts chapter 17, where people are going to live and what generation they're going to live in. Can we just like come to grips with that and just say, okay, God has placed us here for such a time as this. This is our generation. And maybe it is a dark time. Maybe this is, uh, you know, these are decades where we're going to see the collapse of evangelical Christianity in America. Maybe we are going to see the collapse of a nation. That's unthinkable, right? Because we are so cocky as Americans. You know who else was cocky? Rome. There's a lot of nations that get really cocky and think they're invincible and they can just keep sinning up to the heavens. But God, all God has to do is pull the rug out and say the word. And we could collapse. My encouragement to us, listen, is stay close to God. Stay near to him. Don't worry about what's going on. Don't worry about if more and more people are falling away from God. If you're a young adult in this place, you know, I know probably every single week you're gonna probably come across some new deconversion story of somebody who's like doesn't believe in Jesus anymore and they're, they feel so free. Listen, don't get caught up in any of that. Stand firm. Maybe we're going to be more and more and more a persecuted minority, but God is going to provide streams of refreshing for his people. Because wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think some of the Christians throughout church history that have experienced the greatest measures of the outpouring of the Spirit, they've been those who have been embedded in times of persecution, times of affliction, times of difficulty. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory is upon his persecuted pilgrims. So let's, let's be a kind of a Habakkuk people that we stand firm. Again, it's okay to be confused. It's okay to push back a little with, with the Lord. He can handle it. It's okay to vent, be honest. That's what the Psalms are all about. Like we have all these Psalms of just honest prayers of frustration. Uh, you know, David just crying out to the Lord, different prophets and Moses and all this. You know, it's okay to be honest before God, but listen, don't lose your footing 
don't lose your faith just because these big things don't come to pass. And again, I don't know. I, I'm just guarded. Like, I want a national revival. I want to see New England turn around. Amen. I do. I really do. I want to see Providence. I want to see Jesus famous in the city of Providence. But if it continues to get worse, which it may, it's, it's okay. Stand firm and, and don't let go. Amen.